My dad always told me, he said, Duane, he said, good preachers don't lead singing. I think he stands corrected, but brother, that was some good singing. I appreciate that very much. That was a, that was a, you, you have a way of keeping the tempo up, and my goodness, that was a good song, and I, I, what a way to intro into our lesson this morning. Uh, I'm glad you're with us this morning. I'm glad to be here myself. I'm thankful to be a part of this gospel meeting. And I want to say a few things about the meeting before we get started. If you have your Bibles, you may be turning to Matthew chapter 12. We're going to start there in just a moment. But as some preliminary comments about the meeting itself, I want to thank you for having me. I am honored and I take very seriously my responsibility this week. I take that very seriously. Uh I feel like that a man who preaches a gospel meeting has become God's spokesman for that week, and, and I take that extremely serious. And I want you to know that, and I want you to know that I've, I've taken the time to spend time studying God's Word, and I am prepared to preach this week, and I'm prepared, uh, some lessons that I think are applicable to my life, and I hope that you will be, glean something from these lessons as well. Uh, I think there are lessons that will encourage all of us on our journey and our walk with the Lord. Uh, I also want to say I've heard so many good things about this congregation. So when I was invited to come and to speak with you all, I, you know, I, I get on your web page. I look at some of the things that's going on in your community. I look at your web, uh, your, your sermons that you're listening to. I look at some of the class material and all the stuff that you're involved in. Looked at your picture on the main page. Thought that was real neat. Uh, heard so many good things about Brother Josh and, and the work that he's doing here. As a matter of fact, the congregation I preach at in Illinois, uh, 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 once a month, uh, Josh uh, came up and held a meeting and those brethren loved him. They couldn't get enough of him. They couldn't, they're still talking about you, Brother Josh, up there. And so I know that you're doing a great work in this community. And, and as a congregation, I would encourage you, brethren, to rally around him and his wife and their work and, and, and encourage and uplift them. This is this is a noble career that he's chosen and a noble noble work that he's involved in. And I'll tell you what, I look forward to spending a couple of days with you, brother. And I, I'm excited about that as well. Good to see Danny again. I've known Danny for years, and, and it's good to be with him again. And and we got some catching up to do, and 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 so on and so forth. So I, I wanted to say those few things. I also wanted to tell tell the parents of you. You parents of young children, I know how hard this week is for you. I know how hard it is to come home from work and to get ready. I have four children of my own, and they're grown now. Uh, my youngest is uh, getting ready to turn 18, and my oldest is 23. So I've been where you are, and I know how hard it is for you to come home from work, come home from school, get those children ready to come to church. And here's my commitment to you. I will preach sermons that I feel like that are brief, all right? Now, I know that's relative term, but I'm going to try to be brief, and I'm going to try to not hold you here too long because I know you need to get home and get those young people in bed. So let's come together at nighttime. Let's open God's Word. Let's be encouraged together. So don't let the fact that you have young children keep you from coming this week. I'm encouraged when I walk into a congregation and I see all these young people. I like seeing young people when I walk into the church. I like hearing a baby cry to some extent. <laughs> All right. 
it, it, just in moderation. I'll just go ahead and tell you. So if you got a crying young and just, you know, just in moderation. But I, I, I like that because you know what? That encourages me that there is a future for this congregation. That encourages me that you all have young people that is, are going to step up and, and to take the role uh, that, that one day as us older generation go ahead and begin to die off and go to our promise, uh, then there's young people here that's going to uh, pick up the work. Uh, let me also say that uh, I'm, I'm staying with Randy and Janet. I, I'm assuming they got the uh, short straw. So pray for them this week and, uh, you know, encourage them because they're going to be stuck with me for a few days. Uh, and finally, I also wanted to say that if you've signed up uh, for the meal list, thank you for that. Um, I, I like to eat as much as anybody I know. And um, I'm kind of reminded of, of when I was growing up over in Kettle, Kentucky, over in Cumberland County, that there was a we would have dinner on the grounds from time to time and Gospel during gospel meetings, and that's back in the day when they used to roll the old tractor wagon up, and you know we'd all spread our food out on the tractor wagon. And I remember this old uh, farmer; he would always look over at me during after he'd pile up his plate real big, and he'd look over at me and he said, "You know what?" And I'd say, "What?" He said, "I'm glad eating was found out." <laughs> I've often thought about that myself, and I'm thankful for for that as well. So if you have invited me over to your house, I'm encouraged by that, and I look forward to that. Uh, the lessons that we're going to have this week are very practical lessons. Um, I do have one more. I, 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 the lesson I presented to you this morning was out of the Old Testament. I do have one more Old Testament lesson. We'll talk from it tonight. And I want to draw some applications once again from the Old Testament. And then you can leave your Old Testaments at home after that. We're going to be in the New Testament for the rest of the week. And so encourage you to bring your Bibles and, or your Bible app and, and be prepared uh, to study from God's Word. Have you ever noticed how consequences, uh, choices have consequences? Even the smallest of choices sometimes have some very interesting consequences. Let me give you an illustration. Let me give you an example of something that happened to me last night. When I was driving in and on my way to uh, Randy and Janet's last night, I decided that I was going through Somerset and I decided that I was going to stop by your lovely Walmart at 6.30 on a Saturday night. I want to show a hands of how many people in the audience today was not at Walmart last night. That was not there. <laughs> because I'm going to tell you something. I'm surprised that, that just about everybody in town was at that, at that Walmart. The consequence for me was is that it, it cost me about an hour of my time. You know, by the time I parked and by the time I maneuvered, by the time I stood in line and waited for, for the six or eight people that was in front of me, Choices have consequences. And that's something that we need to keep mindful of in our life. It's very practical for us to think about that from time to time. The story is told that during World War II, Winston Churchill was forced to make a painful choice. You see, the British Secret Service had broken the Nazi code and informed Churchill that the Germans were going to bomb the city of Coventry. And he had two alternatives. He had two choices. The first choice that he had to make is he could evacuate the citizens and he could possibly save hundreds and hundreds of lives. But if he did that, he would tip the Germans to the fact that they had broken their code. 
The second choice was is that he could take no action he, and he would kill hundreds of people. But he would keep the information flowing and possibly save many, many, many more lives down the road. Churchill chose and followed the second course of action there. He allowed the city to be bombed. Choices have consequences. And sometimes those consequences, they linger with us and they become a burden to us. And quite frankly, sometimes there's decisions that we make that we never really quite get over. The decisions that we make. I want to show you, I want to begin and I want to show you two New Testament passages that I want you to consider with me this morning. In Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 31. There's an event that takes place in the life of Christ here where Jesus had just cast out a a, a man who was demon-possessed. And over here, rather than looking at the wonderful works that Jesus was involved in, the Pharisees looked at him and said, you know what, the only way that he has the ability to do that is is that, that he cast that out because of Beelzebub. The leader of the demons. That's the, he, he's in cahoots with him. That's the only way that he's able to do that. He's really nothing more than that. And so here was Jesus' response to that in verse 31 within the context of what that event that just took place. He said, Therefore I say it unto you, every sin and blaspheme will be forgiven men, but the blaspheme against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him either in this age nor in the age to come. Now I want you to think about that for a moment. The word blaspheme here in this passage means to speak against. And so what Jesus is saying in the context is, after he had just cast this, this demon out, that these Pharisees refused to accept that he was the Son of God. They refuse to accept that. And he goes and heads and tells them, you're making decisions right now, you're making decisions in your life that you're going to have to accept the consequences for. There's a caveat to that. He goes on and introduces the Holy Spirit in this context and what he's saying, and, and, and I'm going to sum it up in essence, is what he's saying is, that when the Holy Spirit reveals to you the final word of God, what we see, what we have in our laps this morning, what we have on our iPads this morning, when the Holy Spirit reveals the final word of God, if you continue to deny that, then there's nothing else can be done for you. There's no hope of repentance. There's, you're going to make a decision that you're going to suffer the consequences not only in this life, but in the life to come. In eternal life. And in the next dispensation. That's what he's telling them. And Jesus said the reason that they're struggling with this is because it's a heart problem. I'm going to tell you, when people make bad decisions, listen to me, brethren, it's because there's something going on in their heart. they got a heart problem. You ever notice that? They've got to deal with whatever's going on inside them. You know, the Bible talks about in the Old Testament that Pharaoh, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. When I was growing up as a kid, you know, I used to sit there in junior high and scratch my head. Now, why would God harden Pharaoh's heart? Can he do that to me? Can he make me not want to do something or whatever? And then as I got older, I understood what the circumstances were. 
when we read in the Old Testament about Pharaoh's heart problem, you see, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. What he did was ask Pharaoh to do something Pharaoh didn't want to do. You want to see somebody's heart become hardened, you ask them to do something that they don't want to do. And the Bible tells us that their heart will become hard. Jesus said that these people who witnessed this event had a hard problem. Notice verse 33. He says, either make the tree good uh, and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers. How can you being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of your mouth, uh, out of the abundance of your heart, the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasures brings forth evil things. But I say unto you, every idle word men may speak, they will give an account on the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So Jesus is telling us that everything emanates or or starts or begins with what we have in our heart. That's where our treasure is. Is it, it emanates from what we put and what we have in our heart. And what I want us to understand from this context of what Jesus is saying is because of what is in our heart, we make decisions that carry long-term consequences. Think about that for a second. Because of your heart, because of, of where you are inside you, in, in, in your heart, in your thinking, That's what provokes the decisions that you make. And based upon that, we could be making some decisions in our life that we never really get over. Some bad decisions that that, that we have to live with the consequences from now on. Let me show you a parallel passage over in Hebrews chapter 12. Turn, if you wouldn't. Over to Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 16. This is a familiar passage to us. And I think that one that we often overlook within the context of what we're talking about here. And it has to do with the Old Testament story of of Jacob and Esau. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 16, he says, Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Now on the surface, you read that passage and you think to yourself, hmm, are you telling me that Esau, because of that sin of selling his birthright, could never find forgiveness from God? Is that what you're telling me that that passage says? No, brethren, we have to understand that within the context of what the Hebrew writer is saying is is that Esau made a decision that though he wanted to change the outcome so desperately with tears, there was nothing could be done. How many of us have made decisions in our life that we cried about and we were desperate to change in our life? that we were unable to change. Hebrew writer is telling us that he made a decision that he never really quite got over. And there's many of us who make decisions in our life that we desperately wanted to reverse. We desperately wanted to change. We desperately wanted to stop the consequences from coming down. 
And though we sought diligently with tears to change those consequences, there's nothing we could do. Brethren, let me tell you something this morning. I think it's helpful to talk about some decisions, some choices, some things that we decide to do in our life that we never really quite get over. So this morning I want to talk about some things in our lives that we never really get over, some decisions that we make. There's many times we stand at the crossroads of life and we choose a path. And we look back upon that decision and we we, we are desperate to change the consequences, but there's no going back. And so if you're taking notes this morning, I want you to follow along with me and suggest to you that the first decision that many people make in their life that they never really quite get over is found in Psalm chapter 25 and verse 7, and that is a misspent youth. I want you to think about that for a moment, a misspent youth. David said in Psalm chapter 25 and verse 7, as he prayed to God, Lord, remember not the sins of my youth. Brethren, how many of us could say that same prayer? How many of us go back and we look at the times and when we were young and we wish that we could go back and we wish that we could change some things in our life? Lord, remember not the sins of my youth. There are things that we've done and neglected in our younger days that we really never quite get over. I'm not suggesting to you this morning that we can't receive forgiveness. I'm not suggesting to you that we cannot obtain the goal of heaven because of these sins. I'm suggesting to you that there are consequences to our actions that follow us the rest of our life. I look back on some of the opportunities in my youth. And I'm just going to be honest with you that I completely wasted. I can remember my father coming to me and saying, you know what? You're a lot smarter than what I see on this report card. You're just not applying yourself. And I'm thinking to myself, you have no idea how much homework these people give me. There is no way I'm going to do all that homework. I look back on those times, and I can tell you this much. I look back on all the times that I spent practicing and playing basketball. I played high school basketball. went on to play college basketball for a small college in Indiana. And I'm going to tell you, what has that gotten me now? I have this conversation with my boys all the time. You know what that's gotten me now? I've got a sore knee over here. I got a bad ankle over here. I got some back problems. I think about all the time that I could have applied myself, spiritually speaking, and used some of those times that I wasted on things that were unimportant. And I really wish I could go back. A misspent youth is something that you never get over. Many of us look back, oh, if I could just go back and buy those days back. But we can't. Think about the bad decisions that we made when we were young. I've reached the point as a father in my life where unless it pertains to something spiritual, 
I will allow my children, unless it's, it causes, it's dangerous or it pertains to something spiritual, I will let them make bad decisions so they can find out the consequences. And I remember the first time my dad ever did that to me. I was 16 years old and I was deciding I was going to buy my first car, saved up a bunch of money. There was a, a bunch of guys at school. We had all gotten into these Volkswagen uh, uh, bugs and we, guys were souping them up and putting these big tires on the back and we were... We were doing things that teenage boys do, you know, souping our cars up and whatnot. And I found this little red Volkswagen that I wanted to take on as a project. And so me and my dad went and looked at it, and he pulled me aside, and he said, Listen, son, you want my opinion? And I said, Sure, Dad, what you got? He goes, This thing's the biggest piece of junk. He said, You stay away from this thing. Ten minutes later, I'm shelling out the cash to the man. I didn't listen to him. I had more mechanical problems with that car. I mean, I the car sat in the driveway more than I drove it. And I can tell you what my father did to me is he used that as a teaching experience to me. And every time I was about to make a bad decision, he would say, Dwayne, listen to me. I'm going to tell you something, son. You're about to buy another Volkswagen. We make bad decisions when we're young. And I'm going to tell you something else we do. People develop habits in their youth that they pay for the rest of their life. There may be some some debilitating health that comes from these bad habits. And I'm not saying this to make the older generation feel bad about their decisions. I'm talking to you young people. Listen to me. Don't develop these bad habits that you see other people doing. Do the right thing. Make the right decision. The decisions that you make, listen to me young people, the decisions that you make right now, in the first 20 years of your life, the decisions you make in the first 20 years are doing more to form and to mold your character than any decision you'll make for the next 40 or 50 or 60 years. And I want to give you another piece of advice. Young people, listen to me. If you have Christian parents that are committed to the Lord, listen to them. They're the ones that love you. Don't take your counsel from, from people at school and from, from, from uh, your ideology, uh, ideology or uh, what's the word? I'm, not, I'm a professional here. I'll get it out. From psychologists at school that's going to try to give you and push you in a direction of the world. You take your counsel from your parents who've been there, who understand you. And understand the the problems that you're facing. Listen to mom and dad. They have a stake in the game. And that stake is they want to see you saved. They want to see you committed to the Lord. Listen to your parents. And I'm going to tell you the reason is is because a misspent youth is something you never really quite get over. You need to realize that life is no fun and games. This is serious. You know that the wise man said in in the book of uh, Ecclesiastes to remember your creator in the days of your youth because there's going to come a time when it's going to get difficult 
It's going to come a time when the fun and games are over. So you remember God in the days of your youth. And that way you're not going to be like me and look back 20 years, 30 years ago and wish you could go back and make some changes. Let me suggest to you another decision that many make that's something that they never really quite get over and that's parental neglect. Now, the Word of God has a lot to say about this subject in both the Old and the New Testament. Turn, if you would, to Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is a very familiar passage to us. It's almost the staple passage that we turn to when we're considering the concept of of understanding our obligation to our children, at least from the very beginning. When Moses was about to uh, cross into the promised land, he gathered the people of Israel together. And here's what he tells them beginning in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6. And I'm going to read uh, starting in verse 4. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And these words which I command you shall be in your heart and you shall teach them diligently to your children and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign upon your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Now I'm not telling you to go home and to put scripture up on the doorpost of your house. That's not what I'm saying. The principle that we read in Deuteronomy chapter 6 is is that God has got to be such a part of our life that He affects everything we do. He affects our decision. He affects all of of our actions. He affects our job opportunities. He affects where we locate our families. He affects everything that we do. And this is what Moses is trying to tell us. Many passages in the New Testament that does the same thing. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4. Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 6. Train up a child in the way that he, he, um, he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. I've always been interested in that word train there in Proverbs chapter 22. It comes from the Hebrew word kanak, which means to actually put into the mouth of. Put it into their mouth. My oldest daughter, Brooke, was born. We were in the hospital. We came home from the hospital. She refused to take a bottle. I don't know about you, but what are you going to do? Ah, she don't want a bottle. Let's just forget about that, you know. You want to make her some romaine noodles or what? No. We didn't stop putting it into her mouth. We put the bottle into her mouth over and over again. That's the idea of training her to take that bottle, to put it into their mouth. I can't tell you the number of times that I've been around good Christian parents from time to time that I've heard them say, oh, if I could just have the chance to do things over But it's too late. Listen to me, parents. We have only one chance to pull this thing off. We've only got one chance. I get 
you know, I get a little frustrated from time to time when I hear brethren in the church, you know, I hear members of the church, you know, little Johnny or little Susie gets to be about 10 or 12 years old and, you know, I hear their parents say, well, you know what, I'll tell you what, if they don't start changing, then we're going to have to start exercising some discipline in our house. Uh, it's about 10 or 12 years too late. Little Susie gets to be about 16 years old and mom and dad says, you know, they get their heads together and they think, you know, well, you know, we ought to really start talking to little Susie about, about dating. Uh, it's about 10 years too late. My oldest daughter is 23 and my youngest daughter is 19. And I know that here in a couple of years, they're going to want to start dating. <laughs> I do know that. <laughs> So my wife and I have been trying to talk to them for years about what to see in a mate and what to be looking for. And that's the sort of attitude that we've got to have when we're raising our children. We've got to teach them when they're little fellows because we just don't have that much time to pull things off. You parents of these young children, let me make a suggestion to you. I want you to go home today and I want you to look in your look at your children in a different light, starting from this day forward. And here's the way that I would I would ask that you would look at your children. I want you to view your children as though they are guests in your home, because that's what they are. That's how brief you're going to have these children. They are merely guests in your home. Now think about. It how we often act when we have guests in our home. When I got to Randy and Janet's this week and I'm a guest in their home, it was immaculate. I don't know, it probably always is that way, but it was immaculate. But think about how we act when we have guests in our home. Sometimes we leave unsaid things we would normally say or we leave undone things we normally would do or we don't watch TV shows that we may be a little bit ashamed of. We don't watch movies that we know have language in them. Fathers, it's time for us to step up and do our jobs here. It's time for us to be leaders of our house and treat our children as though they are guests in our home. We don't have that much time to pull this thing off. Let me also suggest to you one other thing before we move on from this point. And that is, is that you need to take, when it comes to the realm of discipline, take your counsel from the Word of God. The fact of the matter is, is the humanistic psychologists of today do not understand the difference between discipline that's given in love and child abuse. They, they just can't understand the difference. Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 15 says, Foolishness is bound in the heart of the child, but the rod of correction will drive it far from him. I've taught on this in, in gospel meetings from time to time in different places. And it, it inevitably, someone will come to me and they'll say, Brother Bronger, I just want to take issue on your stance on discipline of children. Don't do that because it's not my, it's, it's not my stance. It's God's stance. It's what I read out right out of the Bible. Foolishness is bound in the heart of the child, but the rod of correction will drive it far from him. Let me give you another passage. Let me give you another verse. I want you to think about this. 
Where there is no vision, Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 18, the people cast off restraint. Where there is no vision. If I can frame that from a different perspective, parents, there is one right vision for your child's life. One right vision. And that is God's vision for your child. It's not the school's vision. It's not your child's soccer team's vision. It's not your child's friend's vision. It's God's vision. Where there is no vision, the people cast off restraint. You know, raising children is not like baking cookies. There's no perfect formula. I understand that. You can't do anything to guarantee that your children will follow the Lord, but I can promise you this. You can do some things that guarantee they won't. And the lack of discipline is one of them. The lack of boundaries is another one. If you do not create boundaries for your children, I can promise you, you're going to struggle with them. Parental neglect is something you're going to look back on much like Esau, and you're going to passionately wish that one day you could go back and you can do it over again. But it's going to be too late. Let me suggest to you another one. How about this one? How about a failure in marriage? You know, the Bible is very clear in Matthew chapter 19 about our responsibility, our obligation in the realm of marriage. Jesus' law of marriage is clearly defined in Matthew chapter 19. Jesus is approached and He's asked uh, some questions about marriage and He's asked about, uh, well, what about Moses? Moses told us that we can divorce. Jesus said, wait, wait, whoa, wait a second. From, From the beginning it was not so. Verse 6 of Matthew chapter 19 says uh, that, that the two are no longer one flesh when they become married. He said, therefore what God had joined together, let not man separate. I don't believe that God's design for marriage is really that hard to understand. It's one, one, one man and one woman until death. And I'm not going to get into the discussion of all the ways that man has distorted this vision that God had for marriage. I mean, we, we certainly have. But what I want to focus on for just a moment is the failure of marriage. You know that word joined is where we get our word, the the Greek word there was where we get our word to fasten or to glue. My wife is a kind of one of those crafts, crafty, whatever, likes crafts. She does crafts. And I see her using these little uh, little uh, things she gets from um, these little craft stores. And she has these glues that she will glue stuff together. Well, sometimes she makes mistakes. And if, the, if she's glued something and she's trying to pull it apart, I, I tell her, Jenny, you might as well throw that away. You, you can't reuse it. Look, the residue is still on there. You'll never get that off. You, you, you might as well throw both of them away. It's, it's just no good. If we can understand that, we can understand how this is so important of a decision in our life. Because I'm going to tell you, I've never seen a marriage where it hadn't been ripped apart and you can't see the residue of what once was. 
failure in marriage is something that people look back on and they never really quite get over. I remember when Jenny and I was selling our house, our first house, we were, had a for sale by owner sign and a guy stopped by our house one day and he said, you mind if I take a look at your house? And he came in and looked around. He goes, I like it. He goes, I like your asking price too. He said, that's what I'll pay. We couldn't believe it. He was like, this is great. And so I began to quiz him. I said, are, are, do you, are you married? Do you have children? He goes, no. He goes, I, I. He goes several years ago, he said, I, I kind of took my marriage for granted and kind of took my children for granted. And He said, me and my wife have been divorced about 20 years. And as he was talking to me, I noticed that the, that the tears began to well up in his eyes. And he looked at me and said, don't y'all do that. And it dawned on me that he was suffering from what we see some th- some from things that we never really quite get over. A failure in marriage is something that you never really quite get over. And young people, listen to me. I just want to, I want to address you one more time. Before you stand before God and your family and witnesses and you vow to commit to a person for the rest of your life, I want you to ask yourself a couple of questions. Is this person really the person that I want to spend the rest of my life with? Ask yourself this. Is there anything in this person's life that I find increasingly troublesome? Is there anything in this person's life that I'm hopeful that they will change after we get married? Does this person share my spiritual values? There was an older older lady that had gone into the grocery store and she was planning, she was getting things to decorate for her 50th wedding anniversary. And as she was coming to the register, she was checking out. And there was a young woman there that was checking her out. And she says, oh, well, you having a party. What's the big occasion? She goes, well, it's our 50th wedding anniversary. And that young woman looked across the counter at her and she said, I can't imagine being married to the same man for 50 years. And that older woman looked across the register back at her and said, then don't get married until you can. I'm going to tell you, that's some words of wisdom right there. Because a failure in marriage is something you never really quite get over. Let me suggest to you this this morning. Unkindness is something, a decision that many people make that they never get over. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32 tells us, Be ye kind to one another, tenderhearted, merciful to one another. I attended a funeral last year and I witnessed a loved one that was sprawled across a casket and was weeping and saying, I'm sorry, I am so sorry, and I never will forget the image of that is burned in my mind, even today. Because what I found out is there was a family feud that had taken place. Words were said, unkindness was uh, uh, happened one to another, they were unkind to each other. And here was someone that was lying across the casket saying, I'm sorry. And we all realized as we watched this that it it was too late. 
It was too late. Let me tell you something. We have some problems in our family. Let's reconcile with one another. Let's learn to be kind to one another. We have some problems in the church. I've sat in church buildings where members sat on opposite sides and they wouldn't have anything to do with each other. Be kind to one another. Tenderhearted. Be merciful to one another. Proverbs chapter 3 and verses 3 and 4 tells us, Let not kindness and truth forsake thee. Bind them around thy neck. Write them on the tablets of thine heart. So shalt thou find favor and good understanding in the sight of God and of men. I'm going to tell you something. We're going to get to the point in our life that one day we're going to regret being kind, unkind to someone. Let me suggest to you this morning that another thing that we, a decision that we make that we never really quite get over, and that's lost opportunities for spiritual growth. Turn, if you would, into First Peter or Second Peter, chapter three. Lost opportunities for spiritual growth. First, Second Peter, chapter three, and verse eighteen. Peter said, "But grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and forever." Have you ever thought about the Christian life as a process of growth? It's a process of growth. He said in First Peter, in Second Peter, chapter one, in verses four, beginning in verse four, he said that we need to add to our faith the following things. And I want you to think about the things that Peter talks about here in Second Peter, chapter one. He said, "By which is given to us great and exceedingly precious promises." That, the, that through these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Now notice verse 5 here. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness. For if these things are are yours and they abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he, notice verse 9, but he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to the point of blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his sins. Therefore, brethren, verse 10, be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you shall never stumble. You know, in the religious world that we live in today, when you start talking about biblical security, you start talking about salvation, there's really two fundamental and the, it, 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 doctrines that are false doctrines, two fundamental false doctrines that permeate the religious world today. There's the doctrine of unconditional security. That means that there is nothing that will cause you to lose your salvation. That, that, what, what that is telling us is the doctrine that, that once we are saved, there's nothing that you and I can do to lose our salvation. And that's not what this passage teaches. Peter said, if you do these things, you shall never stumble. The idea of stumbling there is the idea of losing our salvation, losing our position, losing our relationship with God. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 
And talking about this very thing, very same thing there, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he should fall. So this doctrine of unconditional security is a doctrine that is a false doctrine. And then there's the doctrine of unconditional insecurity, that there's nothing you can do to obey the gospel. That God's already pre-elected all those who are going to be in heaven and that there's really nothing. You can be a righteous person. You try to live right. But there's really no assurance that you're going to be saved. Let me ask you, is that what Peter teaches in this passage? I'm going to tell you something, brethren. There's going to be many people that look back on lost opportunities to grow spiritually. They're going to look back on opportunities that they had to read God's Word, to study from His Word, and, and to make application in their life. They're going to look back on opportunities that they could have visited the sick. They're going to look on opportunities where they could have taught someone the Gospel. They could have reached out to a family member and they're going to seek those opportunities diligently with tears. And it's going to be too late. Finally, let me suggest to you this morning that Something that we'll never get over is lost opportunity to be saved. My youngest son, out of my four children, is probably the deepest thinker that I know out of my children. He, he's my hypothetical kid. Do you ever have one of those hypothetical kids? You know, I mean, he'll come to me and he'll say, Dad... If you can live in any time generation since the beginning of time, what generation would you live in? Dad, if you could be any superhero, if you could have any superpower, what would it be, you know? I mean, these are the sort of questions that he had growing up with me. One time he comes to me and he said, Dad, in your lifetime, what's the worst thing that has ever happened to you? And what could be the worst thing that would ever happen to you? You know, I thought about that. I thought about that for a while because I think to myself that losing a child would be something that would be just, just, just about the worst thing that I could deal with. I think about dying at this point in my life and leaving my family and you know, at the stage as much, that, that would be awful. I mean, I hate to do, I'd hate to do that, but, I, you know, knowing the glories of heaven, I, I, I could appreciate that. I think that Jesus gives us some insight over in John chapter 8 and verse 24 of the absolute worst thing that could ever happen to any of us. And I want you to notice what Jesus said in John chapter 8 and verse 24, and I want you to keep this in mind. He says, therefore, I say unto you that you will die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Brethren, that is the absolute worst thing that could ever happen. Dying in our sins. How many people remember this guy? Just recently died... The world tells us that Stephen Hawking, the, uh, the famous scientist, was one of the smartest men on the face of the planet when he was alive. I want you to notice the quote 
that I have before you this morning. We are all free to believe what we want, and it's my view that the simplest explanation is there is no God. No one created our universe, and no one directs our fate. This leads me to the profound realization that there is probably no heaven and no afterlife. You ever thought about somebody who believes something like that? How sad, how hopeless that is? During my lifetime, when I was growing up, there was this guy, Carl Sagan. Any of you remember Carl Sagan? Carl Sagan said, what I'm saying is, is if God wanted to send me or send us a message and ancient writings were the only way that he could have, have uh, could think of doing it, he could have done a better job. Both of these men were avowed atheists. Carl Sagan one time went on in an interview and he made this observation. He said, I would be a believer of God if he would send me a personal message from the sky, maybe in the form of a burning cross or something, and tell me that, hey, I'm here, that there is a God and you need to be saved. He said, if God sent me a personal invitation, then I would become a Christian. Well, There's two things I want to point out to that comment this morning. Number one, God has sent all of us a personal invitation. It's right here. This is all of our personal invitation. Our personal invitation was solidified with Jesus dying on the cross of Calvary and being raised to walk three days later. That's your personal invitation. Outside of that, God's not going to give you any special shout-outs so you can forget about that. God doesn't work in that way. And the second thing I want to point out to you this morning is both of these men are believers today. Both of these men have passed from this life, and I can promise you this, that both of these men are believers today. And I want to leave you with this thought. What would they give for your opportunity? Some of the saddest words in all of the New Testament is when the rich man begs Lazarus to go back and to send his send Lazarus or begs Abraham to send Lazarus back because he doesn't want his family to come to this place of torment. What would these men give for your opportunity this very moment? I want you to think about that. Maybe there's needs in your life that you need to change. Maybe maybe you have some things going on in your heart that we talked about that you need to fix. Maybe you need the prayers of the congregation here this morning. Maybe you need to be buried with Christ in baptism. Whatever your need is, won't you make it known right now while together we stand and while we sing?